Hi, this is Derek Karp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA Podcast Show, and I've got another excellent episode for you. I am getting ready to interview Dr. Michael Chipley, the owner, the founder, the president of the PMC Group, and a longtime contributor to cybersecurity for control systems and a military veteran. He's a civil engineer. If you go back in his history, we'll talk about that. He's a husband, a father, a grandfather, an outdoor enthusiast like myself, hiking, tennis, and pickleball, and biking, and all sorts of things. Uh, so we have that in common, and a wine enthusiast. He's uh, uh, you know, a man after my own heart in, in, in many ways, and a 24-year veteran of the United States Air Force. So first of all, thank you for your service, and uh, thanks for all you do in the community and for coming on the show. My pleasure. Great to be with you again. Hard to believe it's been this many years we've been going and leading the community through the process, and congratulations to you and CSA for leading the charge and, and making a community that didn't exist 10 years ago. Well, yeah, you and I, we were talking 10 years ago, and we we, we know we're, I don't remember all the conversations, but uh, we're maybe now, maybe just now becoming uh, more of the, the marketplace uh, that we thought uh, this would be maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago. It's taken a little while for more maturity to, to get into all the nooks and crannies of the control system and uh, user environment, but it's progress is being made, I would say. Indeed. Yeah. And I should point out, thank you for being uh, an advisor and a fellow, a CSA fellow, and a speaker for CSA. I mean, you've former chapter president, maybe the, I don't know, the first chapter president in Washington, D.C. chapter. Yep. Uh, yep. I remember, you know, those first meetings we had, those had to be in the very, very first meetings that even, you know, ever existed for the organization that, uh, you know, here in Atlanta and Houston or D.C., Atlanta and Houston, those are the first three cities. And those were the that. first three, right. Yeah. Yep. So we thank were... you for, yeah, all the years of sort of uh, supporting this, even when it's in its infancy. Who knew, you know, where this would all go? Well, as I always like to joke, you know, and it's kind of joke, kind of serious, cybersecurity uh, professionals are superheroes of a sort, and superheroes always have a backstory. So uh, where, what's your backstory? Where did you come from? All right. So I grew up on a farm in Oregon till my high school years, and then uh, moved down to Arizona and finished up high school in Sedona, Arizona. And I enlisted in the military at the tender age of 18 and uh, got my first assignment down to Warner Robins, Georgia. Uh, that was quite an interesting experience going from the west to the deep south. And I got to see and do things I had never even imagined existed and the Okefenokee Swamp. So one of our first duties that I had never had an, any idea that would be part of an Air Force enlisted job was to clear the alert pad where the B-52s and the K-135s were on alert and the alligators would come out of the Okefenokee Swamp and crawl up on the pavement to warm up and we had to go clear alligators. That's one of my first other duties as a scientist, it's called in the military. Uh, so in behind me actually, we have uh, what in the military we kind of call our uh, my love me wall and it's uh, some of the things from my uh, years in the service my my hard hat some of my uh, medals some of my awards and then up at the very top is my retirement flag uh, and i retired out of the pentagon which uh, i went kicking and screaming uh, so to speak when i got the assignment but it turned out to be one of the most fascinating assignments uh, to see how the bureaucracy within the DOD works and the building itself was just an absolute marvel. You know, here's a building from a construction guy that uh, was literally designed on a napkin to fit in between the existing road networks at that time in 1939-1940 and built in 17 months and occupied and still construction going on around. So the Pentagon itself is a marvel of engineering and then 
when I was retiring was when the renovation began. So renovation of one wing out of the five was a five-year effort. So here's a building that was built in 17 months, two years, and it took over 20 years to renovate it. And now it continues to be upgraded and renovated. But uh, so I still work and support as a contractor, the Office of Secretary of Defense, and uh, actually have an office at the Mark Center, a Pentagon uh, co-office. And I still get down to the Pentagon and to the military sites on a regular basis. So as you'd mentioned, I did 24 years total in the military, 10 as an enlisted guy. What was your, was it an MOS? I, I forget what the designation for the different services. What, what did you start to do when you first joined? So I went in as a, what was called a structural technician, carpenter, maintenance type of guy. And then uh, as I finished up my first three years of night school, uh, I then got cross-trained over to become a surveyor draftsman. So I spent my last six years as a surveyor draftsman and doing commissioning construction management uh, as well. That was part of those uh, jobs for the surveyor draftsman career field. As I finished up my eighth year, I got picked up in the Reagan area to go to school full-time for my last year on what was called bootstrap. And so the Air Force basically paid uh, 85% of my education up until then, paid the last of it. I got my bachelor's degree in civil engineering and then my first assignment down to Homestead, Florida. And we had, uh, at that time, a conversion from F-4s to F-16s. So as a uh, newly commissioned lieutenant and being in the design shop and the construction management shops, we got to build out all sorts of new facilities, hangars, uh, avionics, munitions, instrumentation. So as a young civil engineer, it was a just a great place to grow up. Uh, my commander at that time was Dick Cardinelli, one of the finest mentors I've ever had in my career. And uh, it was a special moment for us in that time and place. From there, we went to Turkey in 89. And then uh, I was sent down. Uh, my job was to do the co-located operating bases. So same thing, we're building out this massive amount of infrastructure in Turkey. Uh, and I would then go off to uh, a base pretty much every other week. Sometimes I'd drive, sometimes I'd be flown in. And then uh, the second year, of course, was the Gulf War. So I had deployed down to the border into a little uh, Turkish town by the name of Batman. And then I took uh, the Army and the uh, Marines and the other troops out to their respective sites. Uh, got their radar set up, their Patriot battery set up, those type of activities. And after that, Paul and I came back and I got a school assignment for my master's at the University of Colorado. And same thing, another opportunity. I got paid as a full-time student to go to school. And after I finished my master's, I was allowed to stay for my doctorate. And so I got my doctorate in geovironmental engineering, which incorporated and uh, uh, addressed large data sets. So to some degree, that was the beginning of the GIS era, the CAD-BIM era, uh, using computers. And at Homestead, I'd actually uh, been tagged to uh, lead the team to do the design, build, construct of our very first data center in the Civil Engineering Squadron. And then we pulled all the coax cable, installed all the servers, installed all the workstations, got the system certified for DOD. And that led me to having one foot in the engineering world, one foot in the IT world, and then I would do traditional IT database activities for like grants and contract administration, and then I'd do operations technologies, control systems, HVAC, and lighting, 
and electronic security. Uh, so that's how I have always throughout my career then been in both sides of the camp and could talk equally the language of the comm guys, the uh, IT folks, and the engineering folks. Yeah, so I was going to ask you where control systems, you know, interceded, you know, or, or intersected, I guess, with your journey. Security, you know, came later. Uh, logically, not a lot of people were talking about it. Your introduction to control systems is or much earlier than security. It was it was based on the stuff you were doing, right? The systems on uh, in these military installations. Correct. And in many ways, it was actually the electronic security systems that was the at that time, you know, the cutting edge of electronics and uh, control systems. And so, as I would design, build, commission these various projects, then that's where I got my uh, experience base. That then when I retired in 2001, I went to work for a company that was located in Reston. And I was there on September 11th when the Pentagon was attacked and I could see my old office burning from my new office. And so that was a wake up call. Uh, Shortly after that, I went back to work uh, for the Department of Defense at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, supporting some programs that had been uh, done away with. And then we needed to rebuild those capabilities. So that, again, was another two years of very interesting uh, time to uh, learn and take these folks through uh, some of the things that needed to be addressed. And at the same time, I had gone under contract with uh, Smithsonian and the Department of Homeland Security, FEMA, uh, and doing uh, the physical security upgrades inside the museums, uh, control system upgrades inside the museums. And then with FEMA, I uh, was a primary author of several publications. Uh, the Probably one of the most downloaded FEMA pub is called the FEMA 426, uh, protecting buildings from uh, terrorist threats. And in that pub was one of the first times I wrote the cybersecurity chapters and the appendices laying out all the different types of control systems that existed back in the, in the 2001 timeframe. So that was a, an opportunity to put my R&D skills and credentials to use, as well as then being able to contribute back to the community uh, in a a public forum that other folks could then uh, take advantage of. What year was that, Michael? 2001 through 2003. Okay. Is that the line in the sand where everything sort of converges for you? Because I think that's the question we'll have about OT cybersecurity leaders, you know, of all the different flavors. And I know buildings, which we're going to talk about, is a big thing in your world which is one, you know, one of many sectors. And you see, you've you've got broad exposure, got an area that you're sort of known for. Is that where this sort of all begins to intersect? All the knowledge about these interworking operational or engineered systems. And then sounds like physical security, which predates sort of, that's a a security people took seriously for many, many years when they weren't worried about network security yet. All this sort of converge. And then you start thinking about cybersecurity. Is that, is that way when you're writing that, uh, writing that document? Well, we had already begun to consider it in the late 1990s. The Air Force actually, we developed some publications to begin to address, uh, as I mentioned, uh, starting with the security systems. And then about that same time, the Interagency Security Committee was addressing electronic security systems. uh, And that's where uh, federal agencies come together. And then we wrote, uh, I helped co-author several of those publications. Uh, along with many other of our talented folks. But that was the first documents that we actually then laid out a process for cybersecurity, electronic security systems, physical access control, CCTV, intrusion detection, that type of thing. And then I extended that 
into the HVAC, the lighting, the fire mass notification in the, in the FEMA pub that I mentioned. And then from that point forward, we saw the explosion in that 2005 through 2010 timeframe of now the vendor products adopting IT front ends and Microsoft operating system, you know, Windows platforms, workstations. And so that was the transformational time that we began then to uh, say, okay, are these systems truly secure? Because back in that, if it was proprietary, you had to have the inside keys to know how to uh, hack a proprietary system. By 2011, I had gone back to work for the Office of Secretary of Defense in the Business Transformation and the Energy Offices. And we had uh, uh, developed the smart installation the installation of the future that was going to be digitally modernized and have a uh, modern grid and the buildings would be connected, the meters would be connected. And a lot of legislation come out at that time uh, for requiring federal agencies to put meters on buildings and begin managing our our real estate portfolio. So at that time... That drove, you and I talked about that 10 years ago, that drove adoption, right? It, It wasn't, cybersecurity was a scramble to catch up from the effects of You'll do that. Go ahead, you know, mandate, do this to save energy costs and other positive attributes. But the, there was the unintended consequence, right? Because I remember talking to you, you know, I think it probably is 10 years ago about, oh, man, we got a bunch of catch up to do because we've a bunch of installations have moved in this direction because they had to. Correct. And if you call, that's when Stuxnet came out in the wild, yeah. 2009, 2011 timeframe. And then we had Dooku and Flame and we had all sorts of cyber incidents now popping up. And about that time is also when Shodan came on the market. And all of a sudden, all these thousands of control systems are showing up on Shodan. And the DoD was no exception. Uh, At one point, we had over 500 DoD military installations uh, in Shodan with multiple HVAC systems, fire alarm systems showing up. Uh, so from 2011 to 2013, 14 timeframe, we spent a lot of effort trying to identify how these were on the internet and searchable, and then getting yeah. them out of Shodan. Hey, Mike, why don't you why don't you define that? Obviously, we have some listeners in the industry who will know exactly what you're talking about, but we'll have people who are exploring our industry who might not know what Shodan is. What a beacon uh, in time that was! Like, whoa, what are all these systems? You know, so maybe yeah. you replay the plate the tape on on Shodan. Okay, so back at that time frame, you had all the industry giants, the Yahoo's and the Googles and the Microsoft all competing in the search engine space. And so the search engines were modeled with web spiders to go out and find content and and catalog uh, all those things they could find as content. Shodan was a revolutionary technology and the website Shodan, S-H-O-D-A-N dot I-O. And what John did is he uh, made it to where it searched for IP addresses. And then it would do a metadata collection and a pull from that IP address, anything it could for the metadata. And then all of a sudden you start seeing refrigerators, cameras, building automation, HVAC systems, fire alarm systems, cameras. Again, anything that had an IP address that somebody had connected to the internet, it found it, it cataloged it. And then they added in all these cool features with the GIS mapping capability. Then they linked over to the database, DB exploit database so that you could then run actual exploits. And if you were not careful, you could actually hack the 
systems in real time with these exploits. So, and then we learned how to use that tool to set up sandboxes and then do our own internal testing. And then some of the researchers like Billy Rios took it to the next level and really learned how to take advantage of doing the fingerprinting and the device systems locations. And Billy Rios actually turned that into a product funded by the DoD Environmental Security Technologies Program uh, called BASIC. And so he can now do configurations of our uh, systems uh, with this tool and gives us a great insight into what's properly configured or what's misconfigured. So that was another program office that I, I support and I still support is that Environmental Securities Technology Certification Program. That's our R&D side of the facilities community. And so it's focused on energy and water systems. And all of those now, of course, have cybersecurity implications. So as part of the projects, uh, they all have to demonstrate their cybersecurity robustness. Many of them have to go through the process, uh, the, the risk management framework process and get an authority to operate, uh, to be able to connect up on the DOD network. And um, we actually had in 2017, a call for proposals focused on cybersecurity. Uh, and so we had about 30 projects selected in that era that Billy Rios was one of them. And now uh, our current generation projects that uh, are focused on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and now how can you use those for your data analytics, but also from a cybersecurity perspective, recognize abnormal behavior. And so that has now been rolled up into a lot of projects the DOD's primary one is called Mosaics, more situational awareness of industrial control systems. And then other folks like yourself, when you set up Sophia and Next Defense, and um, those products then got adopted or acquired. And now you see products like Dragos and Indigy and Tenable.ot, products and capabilities that we didn't have five years ago that give us now tremendous insight of who's on the systems, what's going on in the systems, what's routine uh, configuration baseline behavior, what's abnormal behavior. So um, it's been really exciting to see in this last five years, things that went from R&D very quickly into commercialization, very quickly into adoption. Yeah, and you, you, um, you've seen a whole spectrum of things. You sort of already planted the seeds for this question. Buildings, facilities, uh, buildings management systems, uh, heating, air conditioning, HVAC systems, all this stuff. That that's an area you're very well known for, and you know it's one of multiple verticals, right? We sort of track across 18, and buildings, you know, is is certainly uh, buildings and facilities is one of them. You know, is that is there no other answer to the question? Uh, you know, other than that's where you started seeing stuff because of the civil engineering and the military things you're doing, and so you just grew up in an area that, like you described, became more connected, and so that's the reason why that is your specialty. Yes. Yep. So within the ESTCP program, as I mentioned, most of that is energy. So it's uh, microgrids, battery energy storage, solar voltaics, and then uh, renewables, uh, hydrogen, that type of thing. And of course, now uh, with the new executive order, electrification of just about any piece of fossil fuel equipment that we can. Uh, so that's this current generation of call for proposals. And so I get very heavily involved with doing a lot of microgrid uh, combined heat power plant. And uh, now, of course, some of these little micro nuclear reactors and micro uh, CHPs uh, are changing the whole dynamics of uh, the power supply. Uh, so I 
as a civil engineer, I'm used to kicking the concrete, but now I have to dabble with these electrons and uh, I can trace them around the paper, but by golly, I'm not going out there and swip flipping switches. <laughs> no art so, flash for me. So let's talk a little bit, Ben, uh, about you, sort of d during, you, you covered so many different chapters, you know, very briefly of a long story career. And uh, again, 24 years, you know, in just the military part of it, uh, which ended, I mean, just to give it a, an idea, I mean, that your civilian life, which obviously is still very involved with Department of Defense, but your civilian life started, what, around 2000? 2001. Uh, yes, I've been retired now almost as long as I was active duty. Yeah. So two huge chapters in your book, and even those can be broken down into different pieces. So anything, if you had to go back to any stage of that, you know, uh, that's distinct of you and give advice to your your younger self. You know, we have people at all all levels of professional development and career development in our, you know, in our community, from people who are just leaving the military, just leaving, uh, you know, college and, and entering our workforce to, you know, people at all all the change stages of, 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 long, of maturity along that journey. Any advice you'd go back and give your younger self when it comes to opportunities in this sort of control system space or or not even just security things, just say, you master this skill, it'll help you no matter what you're doing. So the military was an absolutely incredible experience for me and my family. It gave us the structure, gave us the opportunity to travel and go do things that most folks don't really get a chance to do. And so if uh, for me, I did not have the family funds to be able to go to college at the time. So entering the military as enlisted guy, taking advantage of the school programs, that those uh, are still out there for anybody that is looking for those opportunities. And at the same time, the trade. Um, I grew up with my dad as a general contractor. And so as a, a carpenter, a plumber, an electrician, you know, the trades now are fantastic opportunities for folks to get a skill set that will take them, uh, you know, HVAC technicians now make six figures plus. So that's a skill set that very few folks have these days. And then we look at our demographics, most of the trades are aging out and then they're being replaced by our younger skilled workers, a lot of them immigrants, of course. Uh, so those are skills and capabilities that for me, then set my path on life. And we always had this joke. It's like in the military, well, where are you going to be in five years? You know, the old uh, extrovert, introvert testing. And it's like, I couldn't tell you where I was going to be in, in two years because, you know, you really didn't control your fate. The military uh, determined your next uh, assignment, next uh, job. And then when I retired, of course, then I became that person. And so same thing. I would have never expected where I was when I first got out of the military, and then two years later, four years later, five, 10 years later, you know, here I am going on 22 years out of uh, the service, and I'm still having a great time. You know, the old adage, if you don't like what you're doing, then go find something that you do like, and hopefully it pays really well. And so that would be my suggestion to anybody out there is do what you like to do, have the passion for it. If you're not having fun, go do something else. And don't worry where you're going to be at in five years. A lot of those things are outside of your control. But, you know, plan for job progression and growth and then keep learning. And especially in this career field, as you know, Derek, the control system world, you can never stop learning. The products change so fast. The technology changes so fast and you have to lead. So I've been fortunate that I like to give back to my community. So I've been an adjunct professor at George Mason for many years. Um, I'm not doing that now, uh, but over the course of these uh, last uh, 10, 15 years, 
I've had a cadre of interns and students that have worked for me, and those students are now out in the workforce and becoming leaders on their own, getting their credentials, and it's just great. And this last five years in particular, uh, what we were calling the ladies of cyber, it has been just phenomenal to see how many ladies, women, excel in the cyber field. And uh, there's that particular aptitude that they seem to have because the cyber portion of it is really kind of multitasking. And I can do multitasking to a little degree, but not to the degree that uh, a lot of the folks that really excel in this. And then uh, learning that skill set, getting those certifications has taken them into a career path that they never dreamed of two years ago in COVID. So there's a bunch of things I could pick apart there. What about this? What about that? Let's talk about the interns. You know, how do they find opportunities? Like how would they have discovered your opportunities? You've been using interns now for some years. That's an awesome, you know, for, for folks that might be listening that are at that stage of their career, you know, students, they can go out and get some real experience. That will be huge for them when they go out to be employed to have worked in a, you know, real environment versus just solely academia. Um, how do they find those internships? Well, so when I was uh, both in the industry, working for large engineering construction companies. I always made it part of my summer program to have our small business partners and bring on my interns. And so then we would try to recruit those interns in their sophomore year. And then by their senior year, um, hopefully they would um, take a job offer with us and that would be part of our pipeline for our, our workforce. Similarly, when I would teach uh, classes, I would offer up if there's anybody that's looking for an internship, please you know connect with me. And then I would typically have anywhere from five to six, and I've had as many as ten at one time working directly for me. And then uh, a lot of it was word of mouth. So one intern would tell somebody else who would then come connect with me, and we would normally have a summer rotation, and then they would go to school and they might come back during the the break. COVID kind of changed all that. So now I had uh, friends and colleagues that were all laid off that had no cyber skills. They could you know, operate a, a laptop and a workstation. But I took uh, uh, several folks in their 40s and they took the chance to try to learn the skills. And as I mentioned, uh, the last six of them uh, that when I started in COVID, uh, they are all placed with colleagues, companies. Uh, they're getting their certificates, and they are excelling and having a blast. And so, you know, every day for me is delightful because I got this whole network of uh, folks that were colleagues, interns, and and now I'm um, excelling in their own right in the industry. I think that's one of the gold nuggets of today. Every session is he drops a couple of these out, and this is a big one. And I'm sort of reading, reading between the lines and uh, having talked to you about this area before, I think recalling some details. People just, they need to start networking and asking around, but getting one, a hold of one of these, if you're at the early stage of your, your process would be huge to gain that experience. So reach out and find out. And if you were, you know, some of our listeners are, uh, are peers, you know, they're, they're leaders in the industry, you know, who might not be thinking about using interns in the way that you have, and that, that that's been very successful for you. And it popped out in my mind and thinking, well, I think the way you said it, it, it you know, go, you were teaching, but you can also, a lot of people will, will allow for guest lecturing at university courses. You just got to call up and say, I'd be willing to come talk about, you know, cybersecurity. And there's probably, a, I know for a fact, there'd be many universities who have you in. So that's an awesome way to give back, go talk to students. And while you're there, say, we have an internship program or I have an internship open and you'll get some applicants that way as well. 
So I think this is really important for any of our listeners, people who might want to take the advantage of using that sort of part of the workforce and those that are looking to gain, you know, get their foothold, get their toe in the door. That's a way to do it. Yep. Well, if you recall back when we started up the DC chapter of CSA, the we had the employers that are looking to hire and people are looking for a job or an internship. And so we were kind of like a, a verbal job board. And we had a lot of folks as we grew from, I think, our initial 15 to 90, then over 100 local attendees. And so I know for a fact that many of uh, the folks ended up getting their uh, cybersecurity jobs uh, through that mechanism. And then, of course, uh, other platforms like LinkedIn are absolutely essential to keep your networking skills alive and keep up with uh, the colleagues and see who's doing what. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that's like another good good mention as well, the the uh, the tools that are out there, LinkedIn being being a tool. Yeah. Have a profile, invest a little bit of time in it. Uh, it is used by a lot of by a lot of people. Um, I certainly have used it over the years as, as well to find the people that might fit a particular uh, situation or, or opportunity that we that we had in one of my companies. Any specific challenge or story, you know, you know, from all these years that you want to share about sort of control system cybersecurity, something everybody would find interesting or funny, or just a challenge you overcame? Well, you know, every project is different. So I've got a, a very large combined heat power plant at a Navy base, and when you start seeing these old 1900 era structures, masonry, stone, and then you know, it took a year and a half to gut this thing, and that's how big it was. And then it's been another almost four years building out the new uh, combined heat power plant with the uh, Rolls-Royce generators and the uh, steam recovery and the boilers and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, here we got to, and every project has its little gotcha somewhere along the line. So we spent uh, a significant amount of time making sure the four systems all spoke appropriately across their subnets and then they interface with the other components as needed. Uh, so from a cybersecurity standpoint, we provisioned that to the full Navy standard, uh, extremely hardened and locked down. And uh, we made sure all the network comes before engine startup. And so then everything goes perfect. The engine starts up. It's running for its first two weeks. And then of all the things that you just really never think about going wrong is a bearing went bad or a bushing went bad and water got into the pistons. So our engine stopped working, but at least our sensors in our network told us what was wrong. And so now they're doing an engine rebuild. So that's kind of a, a atypical, but there's always something that happens on the physical side that you have to account for. And then you have to say, hmm, did something happen to the equipment? Is, this, is there a false positive reading or did something actually physically break? And so I think that's where the skill now of experience comes in. And that you can look at things and very quickly say, hmm, that doesn't look right. And then you can dig into it and figure out, you know, from a, a forensics and analysis standpoint, what's going on. How many facilities do you think you've been into in any, you know, to look at cybersecurity of their, uh, whether, you know, again, whether it's a microgrid or, or, or a building or whatever, how many do you think you've been in uh, to, to touch on some point of their cybersecurity? So the Smithsonian alone was uh, 40 major museums and uh, research facilities. The time with FEMA, I probably did another 100. Uh, Arlington County, I did well over 200 their facilities. DOD, I've probably done over 500. And on any given time, 
uh, I might have a hundred projects going on. That the scope of that is amazing. That is a lot of. Uh, I think when people say, "How did someone arrive in the sort of leadership positions that some of you um, guests on the show are in?" Well, by going along the path, and that's a lot of stops and a lot of observing and a lot of information and a lot of content and real world application you've absorbed uh, over many many years, uh, which you know today has probably gives you a very informed, uh, not just intellectually, but your gut. And so when you see a situation, you probably have some suspicion of what what it's about pretty quickly. Yep, exactly. And then, of course, you know, I still love traveling. So I've got a lot of projects out in Hawaii and Guam. That's not a bad place to have to go out to every quarter and uh, get to see uh, all the new construction going on out there. And then same thing. Every time we go out, we're teaching the construction companies, the A&Es, how to do cybersecurity in the design phase, what that means as it transitions over in the construction phase and the commissioning phases. And so it's the same thing. It's a continuous learning. We're still, I think, in our infancy as far as how the community, how many of the community have now got the skills. And to see these uh, young project engineers uh, being exposed to it and take on the challenge it's something that you know you would have never thought to see in a, a construction RFP. It's uh, for us, it's Division 25 cybersecurity, and you know you now have to hire a cybersecurity specialist with the uh, certification. You've got to have sysadmins with their certification. You've got to harden the equipment and, and the systems, and then you have to do your cyber commissioning. So there's a whole process now that five years ago, literally the first guide spec came out in 2017. So um, we are very much in our infancy of how this community is going to mature. So for any of the young folks that are out there, if you're looking for a growth opportunity, cybersecurity. Yeah, for sure. Right. And and uh, as far as I can tell, based on sort of how all this works, indefinitely, I mean, their whole career path, it's not like it's going to get like we've arrived, all this stuff is secure. It's we're wedding ourselves to a new kind of society, right? Of connectedness and connected systems with more attack surfaces every day than there were the day before. Right. And as but, we mentioned, uh, the technology is changing so fast that understanding the engineering and the mechanics behind it, then applying the data analytics and then applying the cyber on top of that. Yeah. And that's a great segue because I always like to ask as we get near the end of these interviews about technology that's exciting you, you know, things you're looking to the future. And it's sort of a two-part question. What interests Mike Chipley? I just find this fascinating. This is really interesting. And you, early on, you you dropped already the words uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, th- th- those are the words that come up, blockchain technology and things. And now you're alluding to it again, like, you know, emerging technology. So what excites you? And the second part is we have uh, entry-level people ask all the time, like, if I wanted to become really valuable, you know, where might I start reading and educating myself? not just about cybersecurity, but maybe something, you know, in addition, blockchain technology or, or, or machine learning. You know, what would they add or start to add to their experience, knowledge set, educational set uh, to make them invaluable, you know, five years from now, if you were gazing into a crystal ball? All right. So when I have a new intern start with me, the first thing they have to do is go through the DOD Cyber Awareness Challenge, uh, the NIH website for information assurance. Uh, we've got several certificates protecting controlled unclassified information, for example. So they have to go take those courses and get their certificates before they can ever touch any of the equipment or the systems. So, and that's all free. Then the second part is go take advantage of the free resources such as SANS and all the white papers that are on the SANS website. Go to the DHS CISA website. 
Critical Infrastructure Security Agency. Go to their training section, and they have a wealth of free training materials uh, on that website. If you're interested in buildings, go to the whole building design guide, and I've got a cybersecurity webpage up there that uh, covers building control systems. As I said, I'm kind of a, a specialist in that particular area. Uh, so that's an overall general cybersecurity guidance for control systems, and then specifically then drills down into how to take care of the building control systems. Then ultimately, if you're going to be in this field, you're going to need to have your actual certifications. So whether you get the global industrial control system professional or control information system security professional, that's kind of the upper level where you're a cybersecurity SME that can then act as the risk management framework uh, technical lead. And those are the required certs from DOD's perspective. Same thing with if you want to be a sysadmin, you need to get your security plus, your Cisco uh, certified network administrator, your uh, Microsoft credentials, maybe uh, Red Hat and Linux credentials. So um, become very familiar with what the certs are. And for every cert, you know, that's a typically a uh, bump in pay, a significant bump in pay because those are required in order to work on pretty much any federal private sector organization equipment. And then the opportunity to get involved with projects. So use LinkedIn, use your CSA local chapters to, to get your networking, reach out to folks, and then you know attend uh, specialty conferences to the degree that your company may or may not be able to participate. And so, for example, about two weeks ago, we had the Department of Energy leads the Energy Exchange Conference. Uh, and that's where about 3,000 professionals from all aspects of energy and water come together to talk about transformation uh, and the adoption of these technologies. So specialty conferences like that, uh, Security Week uh, is another good one, RSA is another good one. S4s, another good one. Who else can you think of off the top of your head? Uh, That's a great list. I mean, you've, you've just, I've written some notes down about things uh, to follow up with you because there's a lot of great resources that you just listed off. I, I think the, the big takeaway there is there's a bunch of free resources uh, and some of them are informal. I mean, you can go watch some of our old videos. They're very educational, but the, you were talking about, there's like sort of certs that people can get that are free. They can go and consume the information take some sort of test and get a cert or certificate or certification, you know, so you can begin to add some layers. Again, don't overplay your hand and say, I'm an expert because I got one or two of these. That sort of turns off hiring managers. I've heard that from hiring managers all over the place. Like, don't overplay <laughs> the certs. But if you have the certs, don't underplay the certs because if you have them, it's certainly the way to differentiate you from everybody else. Exactly. And then uh, I also pay the interns four hours a month just to read. They have to keep up with me on the reading level. So I have them subscribe to uh, newsletters like SCADASEC, Smart Buildings, the Cisco and the Fortinet newsletters. You have to constantly be keeping up with the technology and what the vendors are doing out there. And then, you know, this uh, in the last two years, now zero trust architecture has become the law of the land. So what does that mean and how do you actually implement it? So those are the kind of things that that's why I never get bored because You've got to keep up literally every day with what goes on. Well, thank you, Michael Chipley, for uh, sharing. Obviously, he's coming today and spending the time with, with me and with our listeners, uh, but also for years of year, many years of service in and out of, uh, of the military 
working on stuff that we all benefit from, you know, protecting our sort of critical infrastructures, things that we just take for granted that they're going to work and they're going to be safely operating and nobody's going to, you know, mess with them. Uh, but that's because of, uh, you know, tireless efforts on people like your part to do those things. So thank you for that. And thank you for your 24 years in the service. And thanks for being a supporter of CSAFE from, I think, you know, maybe, if not day one, it was day two. <laughs> <laughs> that it was. And congrats again to you guys and taking the community. Look forward to uh, you know, and didn't mention the CSA website also has all the podcasts, all the webinars, all the uh, other materials that we've been doing as a community for the last 10 years there as well. So uh, make sure you check out the CSA website. Yep. And hopefully next year we'll, we're going to be some new some new content there. So yeah, certainly our, our goal is to continue to, to help point people in a lot of different directions. All right. Well, Michael Chipley, president, founder of PMC Group, uh, longtime contributor to this space. A 24-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force as a civil engineer, and then uh, nearly as many years working on facilities and microgrids, and uh, that, I think we counted up during your podcast potentially a thousand facilities that you toured and looking at their their security uh, concerns and issues, if not if not evaluating them uh, directly and working on them. Uh, a breadth of experience, years of service we've all benefited from, uh, and these are these are things we all take for granted. Sometimes we want them to work, we want them to be reliable, we expect uh, power and and other utilities to just work. Uh, but now they're networked and they have a, a whole host of, of, of growing concerns. And people like you have been working on them, uh, you know, for longer than most people you've been working on sort of securing these systems. So thank you for all the years of service, obviously, you know, to our country, but also to all of us uh, in a modern connected society uh, and for being a longtime supporter of CSA and for one of the very first chapter presidents and uh, a CSA fellow and uh, always willing to, uh, to lend a helping hand. Thank you. You're quite welcome, Derek. Thank you for the opportunity to participate. That was fun. All right. Take care and be well. All right, bye.